The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Well, hey, everybody. Let's open with a word of prayer. And we'll dig into the word tonight. If you have your Bibles, you can go to Genesis chapter 50. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much. We welcome your spirit in this place. We thank you for your word that's inerrant. Um, it's infallible. It, the, the truths contained in it are just as relevant for us today as they were a millennial ago. And so, Father, we pray that we would receive this uh, text today as God breathed and that we would, um, as we continue to study the life of Joseph, that, Lord, that we would, um, that we would be encouraged in our walk with you and challenged in our faith, Father. We may grow, that we may bear, that the word that's in us may bear much fruit. Be with us tonight, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go with me. Genesis chapter 50. We are finishing up tonight our character study on, the, uh, on Joseph out of the book of Genesis. And here's where we're at in the story. Joseph's family is now in Egypt with him. And uh, Jacob, who is Joseph's father, has just died after pronouncing a prophetic blessing on each of his children. And now we pick up in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15. So as is custom in our church, do you mind? I know it's Wednesday night, but stand just a moment with me. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, and I'm going to actually start in the 15th verse. The Word of God says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Makar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Well, there are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. And it's interesting to me that only two chapters are given to the account of creation. And yet, 
13 chapters are dedicated to telling the story of Joseph. And this begs the question, what is the point? Why would so much of Genesis be committed to this story of Joseph? We've seen over the past several weeks many practical takeaways from this text. We've seen how a parent's favoritism amongst siblings can cause great dysfunction in the home. We've seen the effects of jealousy and, uh, and the great hatred that it often leads to. We've learned how to better trust God in suffering as we've watched Joseph just kind of almost blindly trust the Lord through all that he went through. Through the lens of Joseph's life, we've gotten a picture of what really Christian character should look like, and we can emulate a lot of the traits that are in Joseph. We've been reminded, especially by looking at Judah, that God can change the hearts of even the most wicked people. We've been reminded, don't give up on those who we are praying for, who are far from the Lord. We've also been reminded of the necessity of and the process for forgiveness and reconciliation. We know that it pleases the Lord when we are reconciled with those who have offended us. And I don't want in any way to belittle these truths. They are glorious truths. They are immensely helpful. But I don't think any of these practical points serve as the main point of the text. There's something even deeper that I want us to see. It's so precious. It's very weighty. So to begin with, I want to address the major theme that is found in the text We've talked about this for several weeks, and this will help us get to the main purpose of the story. You with me? So let's look again in with great awe. I love this doctrine at this theme that is engrafted throughout the entire story of Joseph, namely the providence of God, or you can say God's divine providence. Divine providence is the Lord's governance by which He directs all things in the universe to bring about His sovereign will. It's a beautiful verse in Psalm 103 and verse 19. It reads like this, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens. And watch this, And His kingdom rules over, it doesn't say some, it says His kingdom rules over all. And that's what all of the Bible teaches. We went through that last week. Now, you and I, under God's sovereign hand, we do make real choices. We make choices, and our choices have real consequences. And we talked about this. There's a little mystery about how our choices work together with the sovereignty of God. We believe that both of these statements are true. God is sovereign, and we make choices that really matter. How those fit together, I can't explain perfectly. But we believe Him because the Bible teaches both of those things. And God uh, is beyond our comprehension. And so we just will let God be God and we'll just believe the Scriptures. I, I shared with you last week a really helpful way that I've heard this explained. is If you could picture two banks of a river. On one, one bank would be the sovereignty of God. On the other bank is man's free will. And somehow the, the waters of life, the decisions of life, uh, the everyday acts of life flow in between those two banks. 
But the beauty of divine providence is this, when we consider our choices. Here's, here's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that God is bigger than our choices. He's bigger than our mistakes. He's even bigger than our sin. And so our choices do not thwart, and understand what I say here, they do not thwart the ultimate purposes and plans of God. In other words, a decision that I'm going to make, no matter what I make in life, I'm not going to stop Jesus Christ from returning one day because that's part of God's ultimate decision. Nothing you do is going to stop the, the new heavens and the new earth from coming to pass. God has spoken it. It's going to happen. It's part of His ultimate plan. So we see God's providence clearly displayed in the story of Joseph. Remember, Jacob, Joseph's father, has 12 sons. He's got four ladies. Somebody say, oh, <laughs> right? Two wives, two concubines. And Jacob openly favors Joseph over his 11 brothers. And so the brothers become jealous of Joseph and they grow to despise him. 17 years old, God gives Joseph two dreams, revealing to him that one day his brothers will bow down to him. He'll have some form of authority over them. Joseph shares that dream with them, and now they've absolutely had enough. They want him dead. But instead of killing him, you know the story. Uh, Judah gets a bright idea. Hey, we're not going to profit off of him if he's dead. Let's just sell him off into slavery. And so that's what they do, and they profit off of him. They sell him, and he's taken away from Canaan into the land of Egypt. Now, in doing this, the brothers think that they have frustrated the plan of God, the dream that was given to Joseph. But in fact, God uses their very sin to bring about his sovereign plan. He doesn't condone sin. He doesn't ordain sin. But yet, his, he is so just magnificent, glorious, wonderful, powerful that he is able to even use our horrible decisions to bring about his perfect will. It's incredible the way the Lord can do this. So in chapter 50, Jacob dies. And now that daddy is dead, the brothers begin to freak out a little bit, going, listen, Joseph was nice to us when our father was still alive, but now that he's gone, there's nothing stopping him from just taking us out. He's got the power to do this. Will he seek vengeance? That's the question. Verse 18 says this, His brothers came and fell down before him to Joseph, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. And here it is again, the dream has come to pass. God's plan has come to pass. There's nothing anybody could do to frustrate that plan. It's part of his ultimate plan of redemption. And so it comes to pass. So here's what Joseph says in verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? In other words, God's your judge, not me. As for you, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God, and you can underline this word, meant it for good. Isn't that interesting? This is divine providence. God causes all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to work together for our good and for His glory. 
So application here. We talk about divine providence. When your life seems to make no sense, you love God and you are suffering or your situation just seems to be absolute chaos, know that behind the scenes God is at work and His will shall come to pass and He is a good, good Father. Amen? So when it looked like God had forgotten Joseph or at best was indifferent towards him, we see, because we know the whole story, God was at work behind the scenes the entire time, positioning Joseph to be at the right place, at the right time, in the right situation. All of this to bring about his sovereign will. This is beautifully the doctrine of divine providence. So this leads to the question, what is the, the will of God here? Why does, why does God want Joseph in Egypt? Now, the dream that God gave Joseph revealed that his brothers would bow down to him. But this was not the ultimate goal. goal. It wasn't just a promotion that God had in mind. Let's read verse 20. As for you, you meant it against me, evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here it is, to bring it about that many people should, peoples should be kept alive as they are today. God's will was more than just a promotion for Joseph. We know at least that God's will was to preserve life, and understanding this will help us see the main point of the story. I just want to uh, just, just take a little bit of a rabbit trail right here. In our Western world, you know, you hear me talk about this a lot, we are very, our culture is very individualistic. So we think everything is about us. But when you look at the Bible, you realize it's not about you. It's not about you. Listen, if God gives you a promotion at work, that's great. But it's not just about you. He's got new people for you to influence. If He gives you a new job, He's putting you in a new situation so that you can be a light to new people. If He blesses you with a child, it's not just so you can have a cute little baby. He has a purpose for that child. You're to grow that child up in the admonition of the Lord. But whatever it is he, he does, it, it's not about you. Listen, when he called me to this church, I'm grateful that he called me here. But it's not just so I can have a, a nice little church in Richmond and be close to family. Oh, that's a benefit. We're back in Kentucky. We're, back, we're near family now. Sure, that's a benefit, but that's not why God called us here. God called us here because there's broken people in Richmond who need the gospel. He called us here because there's people in Richmond that needed to be shepherded. It's part of His plan. So just understand the things that God does in your life, they go beyond you. Do you remember in um, Acts 16? When Paul and Silas are uh, taken captive and they're beaten and, and put in stocks and stripped and thrown into innermost prison cell. Remember that? He hadn't done anything wrong. They set a, a girl free of demon possession. And they didn't, what's so interesting, and Paul and Silas is they're in prison. They don't question God. Lord, what did we do to deserve this? What did we do to deserve this? No, it wasn't about them. So at midnight, they, you know the story, they start praying and they start singing. An earthquake comes. The whole prison gets loose. 
All right? So there's a testimony about the power of God to all these prisoners. Then the jailer in his entire household gets saved. It's not about Paul and Silas. Ultimately, God's working through them to reach others. All right? So the providence of God, that's one of the main doctrines we see here. But this leads to one of God's purposes. It is the preservation of life. Let me give you a little backstory here to help you grasp this. In Genesis, we find that part of God's sovereign plan was to bring about His covenant people into Egypt. All right? You can go to Genesis chapter 12. And we read that by God's grace, he chooses Abram to make for himself his own people. Isaiah 47 says, for his glory, he's created this people called Israel. Verse 2 of chapter 12 says this, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, watch this, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have the beginning of the people of Israel, through whom would come the Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Genesis chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram. And and, and here's what we find. here's, Here's what we find with that covenant. This is verse 13 of chapter 15 in Genesis. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring, watch this, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So here it is. These verses anticipate Israel's oppression in Egypt. So how does God get his people to Egypt? By sending Joseph? You see how this all fits together beautifully as part of God's plan? Through the brothers' horrendous sin, Joseph gets to Egypt. God sends a famine to Egypt. By the way, the devil did not send a famine. God sends the famine. We give the devil way too much credit. We believe sometimes in multiple gods because we think that the the devil is on the same level as God. He is not. And you say, well, I don't know that God sent the famine. That's not in Genesis. And you would be right. It's implied there. But it's actually explicit in Psalm 105.16. The Word of God says this. When he summoned a famine on the land, talking about God, and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God sent the famine. God sent Joseph to Egypt. It's all part of his plan. Because of this famine, Joseph's family goes to Egypt where they can purchase food and supplies. The family is then reconciled, and they begin to reside there in Egypt. So part of this story is about God getting His covenant people to Egypt. And the famine, as you know, would be so severe and so long that it would threaten many lives. And so this is why God sends Joseph ahead, and He gives him the wisdom to put the grain, the food back in a reserve, and this kind of surplus that the people might live. And then we find this, Genesis 45 and verse 5. 
Now do not be distressed or angry. Joseph is speaking to his brothers with yourselves. Because you sold me here. Watch this. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And what great faith Joseph has. Don't miss this statement. The brothers meant to kill Joseph. God meant to save them. Let that process for a moment. They meant to kill Joseph. God meant to save them. All the 12 brothers' lives are spared at this point. They would begin to be, they would become the patriarchs of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel. And this is phenomenal. So, one of the most important themes in the story is the providence of the Lord. And one of the main points within this theme is God's will to preserve life, especially the life of lives of these 12 sons of Jacob who would become the patriarchs of the tribe of Israel. And if we dig a little bit deeper, hone in just a little bit more, we come to what I believe to be the main point of the story, one that has global and timeless implications and significance. So anytime we approach the Scriptures, it is helpful to ask the question, How does this point me to Christ? What does this text say about Jesus? How does it point to Christ? And I'm not saying every verse, but I'm saying every story, uh, the, the whole Scripture as a whole essentially points to Jesus. So within these 13 chapters, we ask, where is Jesus at? Is there anything that we could see about our Savior? And the answer is emphatically yes. He's everywhere. Let's just consider as starters the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Joseph is loved by his father and is obedient. He's the obedient son, right? Jesus is loved by his heavenly father and obedient even unto the cross. Joseph is hated by his own brothers. Jesus, when he came, was rejected by the very ones that would call him brethren, the, the Jews. Joseph is falsely accused and punished. Remember, he's sold into slavery, doesn't deserve it. Thrown into prison, falsely accused, doesn't deserve it. Jesus is falsely accused and he's punished by death. Joseph moves, interestingly enough, from a place of suffering to a mighty throne, thus saving his accusers from death, physical death. Jesus goes from suffering and from death to being raised to the most powerful position in the universe to save multitudes from eternal death and punishment. You see how Joseph points us to Christ? So these are great parallels between Joseph and Jesus, but there's another reference to Jesus that's found in chapter 49. Jacob, uh, the father, is on his deathbed. 
And before he dies, he pronounces a prophetic blessing on each of his sons. And I don't want to draw your attention to the blessing of Joseph, but I want to draw your attention to the blessing of Judah. This is Genesis 49 in verse 8. It says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Watch this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the, mark this word, peoples. Plural. So here's what's going on. God appoints Judah to be the royal tribe through which Israel's kings would come. You have David would come through the line of Judah. Verse 10 says that the scepter shall not depart from this tribe, nor the ruler's staff. These signify, as you know, kingship. He says they will not depart until someone else comes. And here's the mark of that final and rightful ruler. Verse 10, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not the people, not just Israel, but the peoples, nations. This is prophetic. This prophecy is not anticipating merely a king of Israel. (laughs) But this is anticipation for the king of the universe. Jesus Christ, his, we know who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So what's the main point of the story? What is God's ultimate plan? What's his will? I believe it is this. I believe it is preparation for the lion of the tribe of Judah who would be the savior unto the whole world. God prepares and preserves this kingly line through which Jesus would ultimately through. God in His sovereignty through Joseph's suffering spares the life of His brothers, the ones who wanted Him dead, thus preserving the household of Judah. This should absolutely take our breath away because it is through Judah which would come the Lion of Judah who then comes to this earth, suffers and dies, and is raised again accomplishing the full work of salvation so that all who trust Him would be saved. And here's the final thought for the entire series. Have you yielded yourself to this lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus Christ. Have you committed yourself to Jesus Christ? Are you walking in obedience to Him? I want to just draw your verse to Genesis chapter 50 and verse 18. It says that Joseph's brothers came and fell down before him. They fell down before him and they said, Behold, we are your servants. It's interesting. Joseph's brothers fall down at his feet, bow down before him, declare themselves His servants. And here's what's interesting. 
we don't see Joseph asking for this. We don't see him saying, you know what? You've done this to me. I've spared your life. Now for the rest of your life, you're going to be my servants. Bow down before me lest you die. He doesn't have to. They realize at this point the grace of their brother. And they of their own accord fall down at his feet and say, we are forever your servants. Because when somebody treats you like Joseph has treated them, when somebody pours out forgiveness and grace upon you, you tend to want to help that person any way you can. He suffered because of them, yet he goes out of his way to help them. And so now they just fall down and say, oh, we just want to be your servants. Jesus Christ suffered greatly even unto death because of our sin. We were, before coming to Christ, enemies of God in our rebellion. Jesus, in giving up his life, has purchased our redemption. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which begs the question, why in the world would you not give yourself freely to this king? Why would you not yield yourself to this king? Sunday, I preached one of the toughest messages I've preached in a long time. Because I made the bold suggestion that there are people who sit in these pews who are nominal Christians at best. And I suggested that, I showed you in the New Testament where there, there are two paths in life. There's the way of the cross, the way of the culture. There's the narrow gate, the wide gate, the straight path, the crooked path. Most people are on this wide road of the culture. Very few find this narrow path. My suggestion, and what I see in Scripture is this. I don't think, I think it's beyond a suggestion. My belief, I should say, is this, that if you are not on the narrow path, you are not a Christian. And you can go to church. You can even read your Bible. You can pray. You can do Christian things. You can talk Christian language. You can even be a moralist. You can even have Christian values. Yet if Jesus is not your Lord, if He is not calling the decisions in, uh, of your life, you are on the wrong path. And let me tell you the difference between religion and the gospel. It's, I'm, I'm going to quote Tim Keller here very loosely. Religion says this, I'll obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says this, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Jesus is not Lord of my life so that He'll accept me. No. It's, it's backwards. We, we, think, we think like this. We think, 
All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to myself get on the narrow path, make Jesus Lord of my life so that he will accept me. No, that's backwards. That's the world's way of religion. That's how we naturally think, that the gospel is this. I could never get on that path by myself. I could never live well enough, good enough, moral enough to be accepted by God. I could never be good enough. I can't get on that path. So I throw myself at the mercy of God. I believe I put my trust in Christ. And Christ, by His grace, spares my life, reconciles me to God. And now, this is, I'm, I'm quoting Paul loosely out of Galatians. He says, the one who gave it for Gave it all for me. I now serve every day gladly. That's the message of Galatians. I don't serve the Lord because I'm trying to earn a place with Him. I, I have a place with Him by His grace. Therefore, I serve Him. So, one more time. Are you really serving this King? I have Christians all the time. I pointed this out Sunday that say to me, Well, if I do this, he'll, I know He'll forgive me. That's just not the way a Christian thinks. Why would you want to make a decision against the Lord and say, well, He'll just forgive me? No, it's your sin that put Him on the cross. So when we, when we make those type of decisions, we're trampling the grace of God. So I just, I hope through this story, you'll, I hope that you're motivated, motivated by the providence of God and encouraged, no matter what you're going through, that, that, that God is behind the scenes working. And I hope you see a picture of the beauty of God's grace. And when you do, I hope your response is just to throw yourself down at his feet like Joseph's brothers did to Joseph and say, oh, I am your servant. That's the point. May this raise our affections for Jesus. May we be ever more committed to him. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.